So last week, we looked at the first three sections of Psalm 139 up through verse 18. Today, we'll pick up in verse 19, and I think it's pretty obvious why this fourth and final section deserves a sermon of its own. Uh, Psalm 139 as a whole is a meditation on God's attributes. And up to this point, if you were here last week, I think you you would have seen this if you're familiar with the psalm or were listening closely to it. Up to this point, up through verse 18, you could say it is full of heartwarming encouragement for the believer. David is showing us what it means to know God. Uh, Several of the lines from the first 18 verses of this psalm are the kind of thing that uh, Christians like to put on coffee mugs to encourage you in the morning as you're drinking your cup of coffee or maybe put on inspirational posters. You know how Christians like to put these posters together with a Bible verse. Maybe there's a, you know, there's a kitten in the background or something like that. Uh, you know, oh Lord, you formed me and, and, and knew me in the womb or how precious to me are your thoughts. Okay, that's the kind of stuff of Christian inspirational posters and coffee mugs. But then suddenly in verse 19, David busts out with this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. He says, I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred. At first glance, these lines seem totally out of place. How did David go from talking about God's precious thoughts and how you formed me and knew me in the womb to calling down curses on his enemies? It seems like a a, a pretty abrupt change of pace in this psalm. This is what is known as imprecation. This is an imprecatory psalm, a psalm in which the psalmist calls on God to judge his enemies. He prays that God's wrath, that God's curse might fall on God's enemies. And not only do we have to ask, how do these verses, how does this section, this imprecatory section, fit into Psalm 139, but really we've got to ask, how do imprecations like this fit into the Bible as a whole? What is a passage like this, what is language like this doing in Scripture? It's not hard to look across church history and find Christians who have been embarrassed to find this kind of thing in the Bible. It is, after all, politically incorrect. It sounds harsh and unloving. It offends. It sounds barbaric. And so again, we have to ask the question, can we pray this way? Should we pray this way? If we are supposed to pray this way, what does it mean? How do we do it? How do we make right use of these kinds of psalms? I would ask even those of you gathered here this morning, did any of you stumble over those words in Psalm 139 as we were singing part of it this morning about hating those who hate God and and calling on God to slay the wicked? What about singing those words? Is that hard to do? But the reality is we cannot ignore imprecations. If we want to be faithful Christians, we will be whole Bible Christians. And if we are whole Bible Christians, we have to deal with these imprecatory passages. The reality is the Psalter is full of such imprecations. The Psalms, as much um, as the re- these imprecatory Psalms, you could say as much as the rest of the Psalms, teach us and train us in the right way to pray. Again, not everybody agrees with this. Some would say that these imprecatory prayers in the Psalter are defective, that these parts are not really inspired. They are immoral outbursts of anger. Even the great C.S. Lewis was stumped by them and considered them sub-Christian. He was wrong about that, as I will show you this morning. See, we want to be faithful Christians. We cannot pick and choose what we like in Psalm 139 or in the whole Bible for that matter. 
It's arrogant to think that we can sit in judgment on the Bible, that we can sit in judgment on God's word and decide what we like and what we don't. It's arrogant to think we know how to pray better than the inspired psalmist. We cannot be plastic surgeons reshaping the Bible to make it more attractive to our sensibilities. We cannot cherry pick the parts we like and leave behind the rest. There are many people who have done that. They cut up their Bible, they leave it in tatters, taking just the parts they like. But as Augustine said, if you pick and choose in the Bible, it's not the Bible you believe, it's yourself. It's not the Bible that's your authority. You have made yourself into your authority, into a God. The Psalter is full of imprecatory prayers. It is not just Psalm 139. This might be one of the most famous. But actually, of 150 psalms, about a fourth of these psalms include imprecatory prayers. You'll find in the Psalter lines like these. This is from Psalm 10. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. From Psalm 35. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Psalm 109, which the whole thing is basically an imprecation, is probably the most famous, but here are a few lines from it. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Psalm 137, listen to this. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Or this from Psalm 58. O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. The righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That is God's word. Now, some people tried to get around the problem of the imprecatory prayers by setting the Old Testament against the New Testament. Some of you may be already thinking this. Well, those are Old Testament prayers. In the New Testament, it's different. Uh, After all, in the New Testament, Jesus gave us instructions about love and praying for those who persecute us. And so what if that's an Old Testament thing and now in the New Testament, it's different? Sure, the Old Testament people of God prayed that way, but in the New Testament, Jesus gave us a new ethic of love and blessing instead of cursing, so we shouldn't do this anymore. Well, there's a problem with that, that attempt to, uh, to deal with the imprecatory psalms. And the problem really runs in both directions. That's a misreading of the Old Testament. It's also a misreading of the New Testament. First, consider this. The, <clears throat> the Old Testament <clears throat> already taught an ethic of love. You already find love commandments in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, even in the Old Testament, you have commands to love enemies. So, for example, in Leviticus 19, there is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole chapter is full of practical applications of that love command, what it looks like to really love your neighbor. And, of course, the Bible recognizes that we're not always on best of terms with our neighbor. Sometimes our G.K. Chesterton once said, the Bible commands us to love our neighbor, and it commands us to love our enemies because they're often the same people. And, And so when the Bible says to love your neighbor, that certainly can include someone who would be regarded as an enemy. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 teach this. If your enemy's ox or donkey goes astray and you find it, return it to him. There's an act of love towards your enemy commanded in the Old Covenant Torah. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he is thirsty, give him water. 
I'll come back to that in just a bit because Paul quotes it along with the next verse in Romans 12. But there you have a command to be kind to your enemies in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament already teaches the people of God to love their enemies. Whatever the imprecations mean, they don't negate that command to love enemies. It's already there in the Old Testament. But the thing is, when you turn to the New Testament, yes, of course, you do find lots of emphasis on love. But when you turn to the New Testament, yes, we do find Jesus commanding us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, Paul talks about blessing those who persecute you and not, not cursing them. Okay? Uh, obviously, that's not new. Those things are already found in the Old Testament. But here's the thing, and, and this shows to us that God's character remains the same from Old Covenant to New Covenant. It's not like you get some different God in the New Covenant. It's the same God all the way through. Imprecations, that is, curses, are not limited to the Old Testament. The New Testament is also full of imprecations. In fact, the New Testament quotes from the imprecatory Psalms approvingly and makes use of them. And there are several places in the New Testament where we find imprecations uh, being used by God's people. In Matthew chapter 23, we read part of it this, this morning, Jesus pronounces a series of woes or a series of curses on the Pharisees, a, a series of seven woes that Jesus pronounced on pronounces on the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 11, he curses a fig tree, and that fig tree is symbolic of Israel, and the cursing is symbolic of the judgment that will come upon the unbelieving apostate nation, a curse that was fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple and the city were destroyed. But Jesus curses that fig tree, and everybody knows this is placing a curse on Israel. It's an imprecation. In the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come, but obviously, Christ's kingdom can only come, God's kingdom can only come, if Satan's kingdom goes. It's, it's a zero-sum game. There's, there's a war here between different kingdoms. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the overthrow of the evil kingdom. The overthrow of evil and evildoers. The Lord's Prayer has an implicit imprecation in it. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples cite Psalm 69 and 109. These are imprecatory psalms. They cite from 69 and 109 to describe what happened to Judas and why he must be replaced. In Acts chapter 8, Simon tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. This is where we get the term simony, the buying and selling of church office. Simon sees the apostles doing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants that power for himself. He thinks he can buy it with silver. So he can do miracles like the apostles. And what does Peter do? The apostle Peter curses him. He says, you and your money can go to hell. May you and your silver perish. Peter goes on, of course, to call him to repentance, indicating that the curse will only fall on him if he remains unrepentant. But Peter does use an imprecation against Simon. In Acts chapter 13, Paul curses the sorcerer Elymas with blindness. Elymas is a sorcerer. He's trying to get in the way of people hearing the gospel. He wants to blind people to the gospel. And so Paul curses him with blindness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That actually sounds a lot like Psalm 139. Let those who hate the Lord be accursed. Those who do not love the Lord are accursed. In Galatians chapter 1, we read it this morning, Paul calls for a curse for, to fall on any who preach a false gospel. 
So if anybody preaches a false gospel, Paul says, let him be anathema. Literally, that means may God damn him. May God curse him. In Galatians 5, he tells those who demand circumcision as necessary for salvation that they should just go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's what he says. Uh, the, the, the sign of castration now, the sign of, of, of circumcision, you might as well castrate yourselves. It's a curse to you. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, Paul says that Alexander has done him great harm. Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm, Paul says, and so the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He cursed me, and so the Lord will curse him. In Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs in heaven cry out for vindication. It echoes, actually, prayers from the Psalter. They cry out, how long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood? Consider this, the perfected saints in glory are praying in precatory prayers, calling on God to bring vengeance against those who oppressed them and persecuted them. In Revelation 18, the saints in glory rejoice in the judgment God has brought against their enemies. And actually, we see this in Revelation 19. Uh, there the saints look upon God's destruction of the wicked, symbolized by the city Babylon. The saints look upon the destruction of the wicked city, and they cry out, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. Hallelujah, for God has brought his judgment. Praise God, because he has brought this judgment to pass. We prayed prayers of imprecation. God answered those prayers. Now we will praise God for that. That's what's happening in Revelation. So you've got Jesus, Peter, and Paul all using imprecation, pronouncing curses. You've got the glorified saints in heaven praying imprecatory prayers and rejoicing in their fulfillment. You cannot read the Bible without seeing that this is a major theme. This is a major theme in the scriptures, imprecation. Now, I think there are several reasons why we get uneasy with these imprecatory psalms. <clears throat> One that I'll come to in a bit is that I, I think we simply don't love God fervently enough. I think if we are not comfortable with these prayers, it's a sign that our love for God has grown cold. It isn't what it should be. But I think there are other reasons. I think one reason we're uneasy with these imprecatory psalms is that we actually live pretty comfortable lives, is the reality. As Christians in America, for the most part, we've had it pretty good. And we've been quite insulated against terrible injustices and evil that God's people have had to face in other times and places, indeed do face in other places in the world right now. But because we have not faced that persecution head on, because we have not faced that kind of oppression and evil, we don't see the need for these psalms the same way that other Christians have. Uh, we don't see our need for them because we're not encountering evil in the same kind of way. So we're kind of naive about the evil that's out there sometimes. And I think that makes these imprecatory psalms seem out of place for us. Now that might be changing. We might encounter that kind of evil and all of a sudden we realize, oh yes, that's why the imprecatory psalms are there. But I think we're, we're sometimes a bit naive uh, in our comfort. We're a bit naive about the evil that's out there in the world. Another thing is, in the church today, we have put such a premium on gaining respectability in the eyes of the world and gaining relevance in the culture. We want to be relevant, we want to be respectful, respectable. We have put such a premium on niceness and winsomeness. You know, they say that is the 11th commandment for Christians, thou shalt be nice. <laughs> well, that's the 11th commandment. Jesus certainly violated it many times, and the Apostle Paul violated it many times. 
But there are a lot of Christians around today who think, oh, if we're nice, then we won't have any enemies. Sure, we believe some things that may seem kind of weird to the world or, or uh, out of step with the way the culture is moving. But if we're nice, then we won't have any enemies. If we're winsome, then everybody will like us and we can avoid offending people while still being faithful. And the reality is that's just not true. If you are faithful to God, if you are faithful to his word, you're going to have enemies. God's faithful people will always have enemies. And being nice or winsome, and I'm not against being nice, and I'm not against winsomeness, but being nice and being winsome is not going to dissolve that enmity. It's not going to make that enmity go away. You can bank on it. Faithfulness to God attracts opposition. Faithfulness to God creates enmity and hostility on the part of the world. And so you have to be prepared for it. You will have enemies if you are a faithful Christian. And it takes courage to face those enemies without backing down or compromising in some way. It takes wisdom, too, to know how to love and be kind in the face of that kind of opposition. But the reality is, if you are faithful, you will have enemies. The Psalter shows us how to pray as if we had enemies. Because if we are the faithful people of God, we will have enemies. You can bank on it. The world is full of evil people doing evil things the Psalter shows us what we can do about it. We are never powerless in the face of evil. There is always something we can do, something incredibly powerful we can do. That's what the imprecatory psalms are about. Oh, no, these psalms are not the only tool in the toolbox. They're not the only weapon in the weapons cache that we have, not the only weapon we have in our stockpile of weapons to use against evil in the world. But these psalms are an absolutely critical piece in the church's war against evil. They are a crucial part of our arsenal in this war. And there is a war. That's what we've got to always remember. There is a war. This war goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God reclaimed Adam and Eve and declared war on the serpent. God put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And history is simply the story of that holy war between those two lines, those two seed lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. History is the unfolding battle between those two armies. So the imprecatory psalms are designed for this warfare God has called us to fight. These imprecatory psalms train us in how to fight back against the serpent and his seed. And when you see that, you can really see how the imprecatory psalms fit into the whole story of the Bible. How they fit into the storyline, the plotline of Scripture as a whole. Consider what David says here in Psalm 139. Looking at the, the details of this, not just the big picture, looking at the details is really important. Uh, he asked God to do several things here. And note, he's asking God, he's petitioning God to do these things. In verse 19, he asked God to slay the wicked. And so, no, David recognizes there are wicked people in the world, but David is not going to take matters into his own hands. He knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord. David doesn't need to be a vigil anti-enforcer of justice. He will leave vengeance to the Lord. 
Indeed, it's precisely because vengeance is the Lord's that David can not retaliate and seek revenge on his own. The imprecations show us that, yes, David desires justice. He is passionate about justice. But these imprecatory psalms also show us David knows there are limits to what he can do to bring about justice. Indeed, there are even limits to his responsibilities. He knows the best thing he can do in the face of the injustice he is encountering is to pray about it and ask God to do something about it. He says, depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. He says, they speak against you, God, wickedly. They take your name in vain. Note, it's God's name being taken in vain, not David's. These are not personal enemies of David. These are enemies of God. And how are these men described? They are men of blood and men of blasphemy. They're bloodthirsty men and they misuse God's name. These are the ringleaders of an anti-God Antichrist movement who actively promote what is evil. You know, the reality is David dealt with many such men in the course of his life. David is the Lord's anointed, so he's the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ at that time in history, a foreshadowing of the one who is to come. But that means those who opposed David were part of an Antichrist, Anti-Messiah movement. The reality is David dealt with many such men, men who were bloodthirsty blasphemers. He dealt with many such men over the course of his life. And what's also interesting, you see this if you read First and Second Samuel, he had several opportunities to execute his own vengeance against these men. Like Saul, more than once he had the opportunity to take vengeance against Saul and kill Saul on his own, but he knew it would have been wrong. And so he asked God to deal with Saul. Shimei cursed David. And even David's men said, why don't you curse him back? Why don't you kill him? And David says, no, if God has bidden him curse, let him curse. He basically entrusts himself, he entrusts his own vindication, and he entrusts the judgment of his enemies to the Lord. See, David sets this example for us. He sees this injustice, these injustices are committed against him, and yet what does he do? He cries out to God to do something about it. In verses 21 and 22, David expresses his hatred for those who hate God. He counts God's enemies as his own. Now, it does not necessarily run the other way. Note this. Uh, I cannot assume that my enemies are God's enemies. Just because somebody does not like me personally does not mean that person is automatically an enemy of God. But what David is showing us here is that because we're on God's team, we want to be on God's side, we should make God's enemies our own enemies. That's what David is doing here. It's God's enemies that matter to David, not his own personal enemies. Now we might wonder, how can this hatred for enemies? David says, I hate those who hate you. I hate them with a perfect hatred. How can this hatred for enemies be squared with the command to love enemies? Again, we know from the Old Testament and the New, we're commanded to love enemies as well. Well, I like the way the Anglican pastor John Stott put it. He said, evil men should be the object of our love and our hatred simultaneously, even as they are simultaneously the object of God's hatred and God's love. They might think, well, how can I love and hate at the same time? How can God love and hate at the same time? Look, I got to tell you, the Bible is a big and complex book, and it does not always give us easy, simplistic answers. Life confronts us with complicated questions. And the Bible sometimes gives us really complex answers to those questions, and so it is here. I think Stott's right. 
I think we have to learn to love and hate at the same time because that's what God does. Think about John chapter 3. John 3.16, so famous. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then you come to John 3.36 and it says the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe in his son. So which is it? Which is it, God? Is it love or is it wrath? Does God love the whole world or does his wrath still abide on the unbelieving world? Is it possible for God to love even those upon whom his wrath abides? Well, in some way, the answer to that question must be yes. It's complicated. The Bible gives us complicated answers to complex questions. In fact, one thing that I, I, I don't think is satisfactory uh, I think the biblical answer to this question is more complicated than the old cliche, love the sinner, hate the sin. There is truth in that saying. It gets at something that is right and that is real. But the truth is, sinners and their sins cannot be so easily separated. And at the last day, it's not just sins that God will judge. It's not just sins God will throw into the lake of fire. It is sinners. God cannot judge sin without judging sinners. He cannot destroy evil without destroying evildoers. That's just how it is. You cannot separate those things. So when David calls on God to judge the wicked in this way, what is he doing? Well, I would say this. More than anything else, David is calling on God to keep his promises. This is really one of the keys to understanding the imprecatory prayers. David is simply asking God to do what he has promised to do. If it is right for God to judge the wicked, and it is, then it is right for us to ask him to do so. You see that? If it's right for God to judge the wicked, it's right for us to ask him to do it. If God has promised to judge the wicked, it is right for us to ask God to keep that promise, to ask him to do what he has said he would do. In fact, I would say to you, maybe one reason why it seems that the wicked have the upper hand today, why the wicked are prospering and flourishing and thriving, is precisely this. The church fails to ask God to do anything about the wicked. We have had a failure of nerve when it comes to praying in this way. We don't ask God to judge the wicked, and so of course the wicked continue to flourish and thrive. We don't pray the imprecatory psalms. We don't sing these psalms, and so of course the wicked continue to go on without being judged. We're not asking God to do anything about the wicked. God has promised to judge the wicked, so it is right for us to ask him to keep that promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. That's the basic framework for the imprecatory psalms. All David is doing in Psalm 139 is reminding God of his promise and calling on God to keep his word. What is David doing? He's turning promises, like Genesis 12, 3, he's turning promises into prayers. But judging enemies is not the only way God can fulfill his promises. And this is also important for us to recognize. It's not the only way God can answer these prayers. God could also answer this imprecatory prayer by turning enemies into friends. He could convert the wicked. In fact, I would tell you that when David prays for God to slay the wicked, certainly that could mean destroy them. It can mean bringing judgment in that kind of way, but it could also mean convert them. It could be David asking God to slay the old man so a new man can be born. 
because the language is actually used that way in Scripture as well. Paul, for example, describes conversion as a death and resurrection, to be slain and resurrected. That's another way this prayer could be answered. In fact, it's really the same as doing good to your enemy, showing kindness to your enemy. Think about this. Paul commands in Romans 12 to be kind to your enemy. He's actually quoting from Proverbs. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then Paul continues quoting from Proverbs. He says, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, what does it mean to heap burning coals? You might say, well, that sounds like judgment. Well, maybe, but actually burning coals are used in the sacrificial system to turn offerings into a sweet-smelling aroma before God. To to, to turn uh, an animal into a sacrifice before the throne of God. The coals are actually symbolic of the fiery Holy Spirit. And as you do kindness to your enemy, the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the coals, the fire of the Holy Spirit that the fiery Holy Spirit is flowing out from you to your enemy. And what is the Spirit going to do? The Spirit will either use your acts of kindness to convert your enemy, because kindness can lead to repentance, or your acts of kindness will intensify the judgment that falls on your enemy. But you win either way. Either God will use your acts of kindness to judge your enemy, intensifying his punishment, or he will use your acts of kindness to convert your enemy and make him into a friend. Loving acts towards our enemies can kill them by converting them or by increasing their judgment. It could go either way. And so it is with the imprecatory prayers against our enemies. God could answer these prayers by killing the old and and bringing something new into being. He could answer these prayers by converting our enemies and making them friends. Or he can actually bring judgment against them. The imprecatory prayers are actually open-ended. Psalm 2 is this way as well. Psalm 2, David calls on the other kings who have opposed God's Messiah, the other kings of the earth. Uh, he, he says that they will be smashed with his rod of iron, with Christ's rod of iron, unless they kiss the sun. There are two potential outcomes in that psalm. They could be smashed with his rod of iron. Or if they will repent and kiss the sun, they can be blessed. Cursing or blessing, it's up to them how Psalm 2 gets fulfilled in their particular case. I would say conversion is always preferable. That's always the preferable result of these prayers, the preferable answer, what we would like to see happen. But no, if the enemies of God are not converted, they will be smashed. That's important for us to understand. See, David's hatred in Psalm 139 is actually a virtue. It is a holy hatred. It is a righteous anger. It is a holy hatred driven by love because if we love God, we will love what God loves and we will hate what God hates. If you love God, you will hate evil. Proverbs says to fear God is to hate evil. Psalm 97 says, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. First John is all about love. But in the, in the midst of calling on us to love God and to love our brother, First John says, do not love the world. When David says, I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred, this is not just some uncontrolled emotional outburst on David's part. No, what David is doing here is showing us the channels that righteous anger can run in. He's showing us that righteous anger, so far from being unloving, is actually an aspect of love. That if we love, we will hate. It just has to be that way. 
David knows that if you love, you must hate. And I would tell you this, if you don't hate anything, then you don't really love anything. Because love and hate always go together. If a man loves his wife and children, he's going to hate what threatens them, what would cause them harm. And he'll take steps to stop whatever might cause them harm. If you love God, you're going to be zealous for God's truth. You're going to be zealous to see God honored. You're going to be jealous for God's glory in the world. And you're going to despise whatever dishonors him. Because you love God, you hate what opposes him. It can't be any other way. So if you love God, you will hate sexual immorality. You will hate pornography. You will hate abortion. You will hate child trafficking. If you love God, you will hate greed. If you love God, you will hate theft. You will hate envy. If you love God, you will hate divorce and you will hate tyranny and you will hate oppression and you will hate abuse. If you love God, you will hate what he hates. There's no other way. If you love God, you're going to want to see him glorified in all the earth, in your own life and in the world around you. And that means you will hate all that gets in the way of God's glory. And so we have to pray against those things that are against God. We're going to pray this way in our litany this morning. This morning in our pastoral prayer in the litany, we're going to pray against all who in wickedness lead your church astray with false teaching or immoral living. We're going to pray against those who corrupt our land by doing, approving, and promoting those things that your word calls abominations. We're going to pray against those evils because we are for God. We hate those evils because we love God. That's just the way it is. It cannot be any other way. Look, we all want to change the world, right? We all want to see the world changed. But the world can't be changed unless the wicked are overthrown. That's obvious. But how will the wicked be overthrown unless we pray for it, unless we ask God to do it? See, when serpents have overrun the land... When serpents have invaded the garden, we've got to pray that God would crush them under our feet. That's the only way we can bring change to the world. David was disgusted by sin. He was repulsed by sin. He saw the ugliness of evil and he hated it. I'm afraid far too many Christians today are way too tolerant of sin, way too indifferent to evil. Way too indifferent, especially to those sins that are most protected and cherished and celebrated by the culture. No. We must be zealous for God's glory and jealous for his honor. And the more we love God, the more sensitive we will be to evil. The more disgusted we will be by evil all around us. Because we will see how that sin disrespects God and we will despise it. See, the imprecatory psalms are not an embarrassment. They're not an embarrassment to the church. They're actually a wonderful treasure. These psalms are gifts given to us to train us how to love and hate in godly, Christ-like ways. And I really do mean in Christ-like ways because remember, David is praying these psalms as God's anointed, as a type of Christ, as the forerunner of Christ. He's praying them in Christ's place, foreshadowing the prayers that Christ will offer. Or maybe another way to put it would be to say that Jesus prays these prayers through David ahead of time. These prayers, the whole book of Psalms, really, these are the prayers of Jesus. These are the prayers of Jesus. And so now when we pray them, of course, we are praying them in union with him. In these Psalms, we're not 
cursing anyone ourselves. Again, we're not taking matters into our own hands. No, we're asking God to act. We're asking God to act in accord with his word. We're asking God to deal with the wicked as he has said that he would. We're asking God to curse those he has promised to curse, to destroy those he has promised to destroy. We're asking the righteous judge of all the earth to get busy judging because that's what God does. These imprecatory prayers can correct our mistaken piety. Again, sometimes we think we know better than God. We think we know how to pray better than the psalmist. But think about this. When you hear of Christians say, getting beheaded in a Muslim country. When you hear about Christians getting jailed in China for declaring that Jesus is Lord even of the state, that Jesus is Lord even of the Communist Party in China. Or when we hear about rulers even in our own land saying obviously false things, but trying to promote them as virtue. When those kinds of things happen, how do you respond? When those kinds of things happen, the imprecatory psalms are your trustworthy guide. They are your trustworthy guide in how to respond to such situations. We need to use these psalms. We need to use these psalms more than we do. This needs to be a feature of how we pray continually. And that really brings us to the conclusion of this psalm. Uh, I think the last two verses are very important. It's incomplete without them. These last two verses keep us from misusing. I've talked about how we make use of these psalms. The last two verses keep us from misusing these kinds of psalms. The last two verses remind us about the dangers that come with imprecatory psalms, even for us. In fact, it's interesting, when you get to the end of Psalm 139, David really comes full circle. There's a very nice symmetry in this psalm between how it begins and how it ends. In fact, there are a number of symmetries in this psalm. David opens the psalm saying, God has searched me and known me. And then he ends this psalm praying that God would search him and know him. God already has searched David. God already knows David. But now David is asking God to let him in on what God already knows about him. That is, David is asking for a deeper self-knowledge. God knows David better than David knows himself. And so David says to God, search me, know me, show me what you find. Show me myself. Help me to know myself better. Now, why would David end this psalm this way? Well, think about it. David has been praying against the wicked. But if you know anything about the life of David, you know he did some pretty wicked things himself. And that's true for us too. All of us are sinners. All of us have done wicked things. As Souls and Eaton said, the line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. We've all got to be like Chesterton, who when he was asked what's wrong with the world, he simply said, I am. I'm the problem. Uh, the pastor Robert Murray Machane said, the seeds of every sin known to man dwell in my heart. That is true for each one of us. The seeds of every sin known to man are in your heart just waiting to germinate and bear their bad fruit. David knows that his imprecatory psalm will rebound to his own destruction. He knows that this psalm will boomerang right back at him unless he is humble and repentant and seeks the Lord's mercy and finds his forgiveness. David's prayer that God would slay the wicked would be a suicidal prayer unless David knows that God will be merciful to him. 
I think the prophet Isaiah knew this too. It's really interesting. Isaiah had a ministry of imprecation. Isaiah's whole ministry was to announce judgment on the wayward people of Israel, to announce God's curse, that God's curse is about to fall on the people. And so in chapter 3, he says, woe to the wicked. And in chapter 5, he's got a long series of woes he pronounces on the people. He says in chapter 5, woe to the greedy, woe to the drunkards, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, woe to the prideful and to the arrogant. Woe, 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 woe upon you. But then in the very next chapter, in Isaiah 6, when he sees the divine glory high and lifted up in the temple, when God searches him out and exposes the reality of Isaiah's own heart, he cries out, woe, only this time it's woe is me, for I am an unclean man with unclean lips. Isaiah realized the woes he's been pronouncing will fall on him, that he too is doomed unless God is merciful, unless he looks to the mercy of God continually, he too will experience that woe. He went from woe to the wicked to woe is me because he knew only God's mercy could save him. Only the mercy of God can save us from woe. Only the mercy of God can save us from being slain along with the rest of the wicked. David's really doing the same thing here at the end of Psalm 139. David knew he had blind spots, and he wants God to reveal them so he can act on that knowledge by confessing these sins and repenting of them and calling upon God to show him mercy. He says, search me, that is, examine me, expose me, show me who I really am. He says, try me and test my thoughts. Put me to the test and tell me what you find. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, he searches minds and hearts. We are all transparent to Jesus. All of us are open books to Jesus. And knowing that is humbling. Jesus knows sins about you that you don't even know that you're too blind to even see in your own life. Jesus is the one who searches us out. Obviously, in all of this, David has not prayed his imprecatory prayer out of any smug self-righteousness or maliciousness or bitterness. He would not end this way if he was self-righteous. He would not end this way if this was just about being malicious or bitter towards his enemies. Obviously, David hates his own sin as well. Obviously, he hates his own sin just as much as anyone else's sin. Even more so, perhaps. David's war on evil is not limited to evil out there in the world around him. He is also focused on going to war and fighting against the evil in his own heart. And so he seeks to hate his own evil with a perfect hatred. He asked God to slay him that a new David might come to life, that more and more he might put to death the old and live as the new. That's David's prayer. He wants to hate his own evil with a perfect hatred so he can love God with a perfect love. And so David closes this psalm with a word of hope and a word of confidence. He cries out, lead me in the way everlasting. That is his closing he knows his destination is eternal life. He knows he's headed for eternal glory. You know, I said last week, as we were looking at the earlier part of this psalm, he knows how his story will end. He knows the path he's traveling and where it leads to. 
And this is instructive for us. Just as we must make use of the imprecatory part of this prayer, we must make use of David's conclusion as well. We must ask God to search us and test us and try us and expose our sin so we can repent of it and call out for God's mercy. We must ask God to help us wage war against sin in our own lives, to put to death the old, to slay the old me so a new me can come to life. Like David, we must cling to God's grace. We must ask God to keep us in the way, the way of faith, the way of repentance, the way of holiness, which is the way of life everlasting. And we must look to Christ who was slain for our wickedness on the cross, who took the curse we deserve, who bore the divine wrath on our behalf. He is the one who searches us out. He is also the one who forgives our sins. And that is our hope. And this is how he leads us in the way everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.